Hi there, I'm Dan or Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here on this show, we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. This week, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation that I had earlier this year with Anna Palmer. Along with her partner, Costa, Anna directed the 2021 film Inhabitants, an indigenous perspective. That's the subtitle there. Inhabitants is a feature documentary that follows five Native American tribes and their land management practices, which are increasingly being seen as part of the solution to climate change, or at least certainly part of the adaptation to climate change in some cases. Included in the film are sustainable agricultural and food production practices from native Hawaiian food forests and the Hopi and Menominee tribes in Wisconsin and Arizona. It also explores burning practices from the Carrick tribe in California and the return of buffalo on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. In our conversation, we discussed Anna's kind of past, her kind of pathway, which involved Sweden and the United States and her research on climate change in tribal areas in the American Southwest as part of the Native Waters on Arid Lands project. Anna also spoke about what she had learned by making inhabitants and the process of funding and making the documentary. This included consulting a tribal advisory board with the aims of preserving cultural sensitivity and value for the people featured in the documentary. One aspect of the conversation that particularly stayed with me was the idea that not all knowledge should necessarily be shared openly. There's a, a movement in science at the moment to make everything open, which I'm a, a supporter of, a big supporter of. But the film reveals that there's some tension between that movement uh, and the interviewees, uh, some of the interviewees who felt like they uh, didn't necessarily want to share their tribal knowledge, that they felt like that was needed to be protected, that needed to be preserved in a way. This is also something that uh, Dr. Valerie Small touched on in our conversation uh, earlier, on an earlier episode. So if that's something that interests you also, go look out for that episode from June of this year, of 2021. There are some screenings of inhabitants happening across several locations in the United States in November with plans to release the film on streaming services sometime soon. So you can find all the details at inhabitantsfilm.com. I really enjoyed the film. I watched a, a screener beforehand, and I'd recommend, uh, definitely recommend it. Have a look, watch it when it becomes available to you, wherever you are. Anna and the team have kindly made a clip of the film available to us. So after the clip, let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Anna Palmer. Here we go. We don't have perfect knowledge. We don't have perfect science. But we've, we've always been adaptive. I think Menominee's history has been adaptive to resource management, political ideas, and learning how to, to deal with them, but also staying true to cultural identity. And that's the secret of, of this place. This is an ancestral map, kind of before European settlement. And this represents about 15 million acres here. Between 1817 and 1856, through land sessions, 15 million acres shrank to 234,000 acres. Of the 234,000, just about all of it is managed. 
for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Um, so why don't we uh, start with the history stuff? Would you like to kind of tell me where'd you grow up? What was your kind of environment like for your childhood? Yeah. Well, thanks, Dan, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I was actually born in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, my mom still lives there. Um, but I grew up in Nyack. Um, and I'm speaking to you today from the mid Hudson Valley. So just a couple hours north of where I grew up, um, which is the ancestral land of the Lenape Muncie people, past, present, and future. So Nyack is actually a Lenape word that means the point. And we have this like beautiful mountain. And I grew up being really um, lucky to have access to being outside and being in the outdoors all the time and spending my summers in Sweden with my grandparents, which was basically just out on the islands in the Baltic Sea and being very connected to nature my whole life growing up. So then my path forward in undergrad was kind of a natural evolution into just doing environmental studies, which was this new um, field at the time, which was, a you know, taking the ecology and the social side of academic realms and mm -hmm. putting them together because you need to know both in order to, to affect change in the world. Yeah. And was then that, I, yeah. Was that in, was that in Sweden or in the U.S. or where, where did you, your undergrad stuff? I did my undergrad at SUNY Purchase, so Purchase College, which is just in um, White Plains yeah. area outside of New York City. And then I went directly from my undergraduate degree to my master's program, which I completed at Ohio University's Voinovich School of Leadership mm -hmm. and Public Affairs. So again, I got a really good integration of like the social and policy side of doing environmental change and more of the scientific side. And I got to work with my mentor and academic advisor, um, Dr. Derek Konekis, who now is at the University of Nevada. Oh, yeah, New University of Nevada, Reno um, and the Desert Research Institute. And between 2015 and 2018, I worked with him as his research assistant under a grant of the United States Department of Agriculture. They have been working on a five-year, $5 million grant um, called the Native Waters on Arid Lands Project, which was specifically geared towards helping tribes in the Southwest adapt to climate change, and specifically with the emphasis on food security, mm -hmm. um, because drought is becoming such an intense threat out there. Um, so I, I was so lucky to get to work with Derek and work under the Native Waters on Arid Lands Grant because that was the beginning that was of my relationship working with Native people as a climate scientist, giving access to information and making some of this like scientific data more accessible. What was the connection with the States? Was uh, So your mom is from Sweden and you were born there and then you ended up in the U.S. at some point. Yeah. What was the connection there? Is that other side of the family or? Yeah, that's my dad. So yeah. my mom and dad actually met doing like um, activism work, doing nuclear hmm. freeze stuff in the 80s. Oh um, yeah, classic. <laughs> yeah. So they were both canvassers and um, she, we just decided to stay in New York mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of his his work life was more yeah. um, New York focused. He grew up in Brooklyn, so we're pretty close to where he 
grew up. Okay, yeah. So you end up with this, you know, two two continent intercontinental family. And yeah. did you do so? You you did a bit of bouncing back and forth between the two places growing up, or you, it sounds like you experienced both of them. Yeah, that- I did. I I would spend like four months a year there. And I went to international summer camp over the summers when I was in high school. So I got to learn how to like read and write and mm. become more literate, um, which was something that like I grew up speaking Swedish with my mom. But then when you actually like sit down to like write something down, you're like, wait, I don't really know how to write it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to learn how to write it. And then actually after my master's program when I graduated in 2017, I worked as an arborist or I worked for a tree care company and I got to like climb the trees in Stockholm, which has like so much beautiful green space, Mm. pruning them and making them, keeping them healthy. And that was a really great experience getting to, yeah, like live there as an adult and work there and um, experience the the Scandinavian lifestyle. Yeah. So, I mean, not to put you into a box or anything definitely not trying to do that but i was just wondering if kind of social justice questions and issues um, things that you know one might find protests about were those kind of topics of discussion like in your household like were they things that would be talked talked about you know over dinner or whatever was it kind of in in the air yeah definitely my father worked for he did a lot of stuff working on like child poverty issues in New York city. Um, and my mom is a social worker. So she was working. They, my, my older sister was actually born in Brooklyn. So they had lived in Brooklyn and then they lived in Stockholm. They had like one kid on one side of the pond and (laughs) the other one on the other side. Um, and it was just very much a focus on like, I mean, we would always have family dinners and we would be talking about the news from a pretty young age. And it's been such an intense awareness of, of being in a place of privilege and knowing that there's, there's people in the world that don't have the same conditions that they're born into Mm -hmm. and that you need to use the, the position that you have of, of like comfort and all of these like basic needs being met to like help um, other people get onto a better, like get into a better mm. realm. So you need to like put your, your effort in life into like helping, um, level the playing field. Mm. And that was something that I, I heard from a very young age and my dad did it very explicitly with doing, you know, like a lot of grant type work with nonprofits. And my mom did it like on a interpersonal basis, like working directly with people. Um, and mm. I feel like that has been a really foundational motivation for the work that um, I'm doing now is is yeah. like not thinking that you're better than anybody else because of the conditions <laughs> that you're born in, but yeah. knowing that there's that we're all the same and it's just these kind of random conditions that you are born into. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people really resist that idea. Some people really resist that you know the notion that you just just put out there. And I don't have any great insights into why that is, but that's definitely, there's some kind of defense mechanism there in a lot of people yeah. where they, uh, that, that that's not something that everyone is like ready to accept and take on. There's definitely different levels of, of acceptance of that, um, of that yeah. reality. And, and Sweden is such an interesting place too. Yeah. They, they um, yeah, no, they, they've let in like a couple million refugees and they're a small country, like they only have like 9 million people in their country. And they started, 
their policy of letting more people immigrate there um, at a very, at like, I think it was like 2005 or something. And since then, they've let like 2 million people enter into their country in that same vein of like leveling the playing field. Like we have enough resources. We're going to let people come in. And my mom was a very strong supporter of that while like her parents were not. So there, there is like that strong resistance to, to things changing and, and, you know, things getting evened out that I'm, I'm like totally there. I've experienced that also, um, especially from older generations. Right. Yeah. So I think that's going to come up again when we talk about the documentary, because I think that could be an interesting place to to dig into in a minute. Um, So you did your master's in Ohio and you were working with this researcher and it sounds like you ended up in this really interesting area. So you said it was a grant to work on like indigenous uh, access to kind of or, uh, management of like natural resources. Can we pick up there? So I'm kind of curious about the transition from, you know, you were in research life and at some point you made a movie. So I think that's a very interesting <laughs> transition. What did, what did that look like? Yeah. Thanks for the question. I, I think the, the, the transition happened from the fact that I, through this access point with this grant, doing the climate research for the Native Waters on Arid Lands Project, I was able to attend and present at academic conferences where there were a lot of tribal representatives there as well. And those were really unique places where, you know, like there were federal agencies like the USDA present, as well as, you know, like non-academic Uh, partners, just, you know, native natural resource managers in the same room, kind of like trying to figure out how we can work together and affect change. And there were also representatives from, you know, like the conservation services that work directly with extension offices. So there was this really unique spot of getting to affect change in these places. Well, there's your podcast. Record some of those conversations. I bet that, I mean, I really want to be a fly on the wall in a situation like that because I love my academic conferences, but it's true that we we all are trying to understand something together. We don't have as much of that direct connection with, you know, people who like might need to do stuff with that knowledge and might need to like use it to, to totally. for, for water management. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and that, that was something that, I mean, you would have loved attending conferences like this. And I think that there still are, there are a couple other conferences that I can recommend that have a really strong Native American presence at them. Like one of them is the National Adaptation Forum. That was one of the other venues that I got to go to and be a representative for this Native Waters on Arid Lands grant. Um, And you get to talk to tribal project leaders, people who are just doing stuff on the ground. And something that I consistently heard from people in those, you know, like side conversations was that their way of doing things and their their stewardship efforts that they were still doing weren't being given enough credit or recognition in these broader climate adaptation conversations. Yeah. And they felt like they were they weren't being re- represented or, you know, respected enough. And then I I started asking them you know, like in more informal, like not just presenting my research to them, but I was like, well, what would be helpful? Like, what is something that would be helpful for you getting your, your story heard? And then something that they, again, consistently said was that they wanted more, you know, media representation where people could actually like see what they were doing, because not everyone has the opportunity to go there. 
So if there was ways that we would be able to document what they're doing, um, that would be something that would actually be helpful for them. And they would be able to hold that and be proud of that because it would be told from their, their perspective. Um, and that's, oh, yeah. that's like where the, the inspiration for the film came. And that was in 2018. So it was three years of just being the academic researcher being like, this is how you down, this is how you use downscaled climate data to adapt to climate change. <laughs> yeah. And then I kind of, through listening and talking to people, I was able to kind of change the approach of working with them. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you had your, your ear to the ground or your ears open, so to speak, you were listening and there was this very clear need that was being expressed or this very clear, like, Hey, this, this would help us out if somebody could put this message out into the world. So had you had any experience with filmmaking before or documentary filmmaking before when you said it was kind of you and your partner that did that together, right? Is yeah. that, is that where, uh, do they have more of expertise in that? I'm just trying to get a sense of where it, how it like came together is what I'm going for. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I didn't personally have any experience doing documentary filmmaking beforehand, but my partner who had made a documentary previously and I would come back from these conferences and these meetings, be like my, being like, my mind is blown. We have to, like, I really want to go out and see what these tribal project leaders are doing. It's so exciting. It's so interesting. And, and what if there was a way that we would be able to film them? Like these tribal project leaders want to be in partnership and be, and be filmed and have their stories be told. Like, would there be a way to make that happen? And, and that was kind of through those, those initial partnerships that we, that I made at these conferences was where we got the start for deciding how to get them filmed. And, and, um, Costa, had made a documentary about permaculture um, or regenerative agriculture that came out in 2015. And he had been doing, he went to film school and had all the equipment and and expertise Mm. in physically filming it. And then I got to bring my expertise of, of knowing how to ask the right research questions and kind of target, you know, an interview process. So that was kind of the, like a perfect culmination of skills coming together and working with a lot of the people that I got to meet at these conferences. Right, right, yeah. I well, Like I said earlier, I just finished the documentary. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really nice and uh, really well done. And uh, I, I've got, well, different questions, but I think it, it might be exciting to kind of go for one of the big headline ones for, for me. One of the themes that came up consistently in the documentary is you know all of the um, indigenous folks that you spoke to? They is that fine? Is that fine? Like indigenous folks? Is that an okay catch-all general yeah, general term? Mm-hmm. Um, so they were pretty consistent with this message of, like you said, that they've been whether it's fire management or like crop management, uh, just kind of general ecosystem management and, and farming, that they are the kind of stewards of these really old practices, these you know millennia old practices on how to uh, plant crops and how to keep that whole ecosystem going, how to keep it in balance, how to maintain a level of biodiversity that makes the ecosystem resilient to change, for example, disease or climate change. And one of the things that kept coming up, which I thought was really interesting, was... Um, 
I think more than one of the people you spoke to said that, well, we need to merge the old approach with the Western approach. You know, I, I thought it was notable that like, well, nobody said we need to go back. You know, nobody said like, let's just completely go back. That wasn't the message. Um, partly because, I mean, that's probably practically impossible just given how, you know, how much what we can broadly call Western society has now, um, you know, gotten into these places and is now such a big feature of it. But also I just thought there was an interesting recognition there of that this is a, this is now a shared common interest. This is now like a shared common destiny that we have of where are we going to go forward from here? So yeah, the, the merging of old ways and new ways, the merging of, you know, traditional approaches and Western approaches. And uh, so Eric Holthaus put out this book a few months ago uh, called the future earth I don't know if you've seen that one, but you know he was basically talking about envisioning the next few decades of adapting to climate change. And one of the things in that themes in that book, this is a long way to ask a question, but we're getting we're getting there, uh, is that he spoke to the importance of imagination, of how important it is to be able to picture the transitions that are coming and picture the kind of world you're going to be going into. And I imagine this is something you've thought about, but what will this merging process look like, you think? You know, the merging of older ways and newer approaches. I mean, it sounds like that's actually an area you've been in those conferences, you've done the work. It sounds like you might have some direct experience with this, but I'm having a hard time myself imagining, you know, what does that, what, what does it really look like on the ground to have old approaches and new approaches, you know, uh, traditional and, and Western approaches kind of fused together or mutually, you know, benefiting each other? Would you like to, can you speak to that? Yeah, that is such an exciting area of, of thought to go into. What, mm. what in, a, in a perfect world, how would we merge these, you know, millennia old practices with what we have available to us in the 21st century? And I think that something that is coming up for me right now is just kind of that every single one of the five projects that we focus on, they, they all have a, a big picture of future goal that they're working towards. Yeah. And that, that if you, if they had some of these, you know, like institutional barriers removed, what would be possible? And, and, and in thinking of that, like, um, I can just run through a couple of what those future worlds would look like. Yeah. Probably better to be specific. We can be specific, right? That probably would be a good way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, um, like the Menominee tribe in Wisconsin, right? They used to have their ancestral territory used to be 15 million acres around the Great Lakes. And now their reservation has been shrunken down to only 220,000 acres. And their forest is managed in such good health that you can see their reservation from outer space. There's a square around their yeah. reservation and they have the only old growth forest that's left in the Northeast. And I think their future world and what they're trying to promote with their sustainable forestry practices, which ha is starting to get world recognition, is that what if all timber management companies started managing their forests in a more holistic approach? What if they took the lessons and the wisdom that the Menominee forest keepers have and integrate that into their management systems where they only, they, they manage, I think they manage like 32 different species of timber 
on their forest. And, and the president of the Menominee tribal enterprises, the lumber mill, she says, she says it like we, we can only take what the forest gives us and we can't operate like a capitalistic society does because it's the forest first. And they, they live that ethic in a way that is so inspiring to be around. Um, and if that could inspire other people, because I think that there's a lot of people who who believe that ethic, but then they say, oh, but you know, we can't do it because that's not the way, that's not the system that we live in. So we, so we can't do it. And something that was mm-hmm. so amazing about their, like the Menominee tribe is that they figured out a way to do it and not compromise their ethics of keeping the land first. So that's one example. And then right. Right. Another one well, that's yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. So, the what that makes me think of is um, so they they still operated you know an up a timber type operation. You know they still uh, sold products and they still you know did, but the, the the emphasis, like you said, has changed. Instead of putting uh, profit at the top of the stack you say well let's let's put the forest health at the top of the stack because we actually need the forest and if we don't manage it properly and carefully and if it's gone then we're going to be in in real trouble and uh yeah so the, which, there seems to be a lot of wisdom in that statement which maybe it's kind of cliche to point out but yeah i guess the western tradition seems to have lost that kind of wisdom because we sort of picture endless growth we just picture like bigger and bigger and bigger expansion but we're on a finite planet with finite resources. So, you know, endless, infinite expansion doesn't work. And I'm, I'm stealing this from another podcast, but I've heard someone describe that as imagine just trying to inhale forever. Like that's kind of what that's like. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and inhaling. At some point you have to exhale. At some point you have to, to breathe and have that more reciprocal relationship with the, with the environment. So yeah, I really enjoyed that part of the, the documentary and I'm, I'm glad you dug into it. So it, yeah, it's not. Uh, it, it it's it's a provocative idea of like, yeah, we might need to have a fundamental shift in you know how we value nature and how we value um, those kind of nat- those kind of natural systems. But why don't you? Uh, I stopped you. I should have just let you go ahead to the second example. What, what's your, what's the second example you were thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I think just after hearing your response, though, it makes me think a little bit more about how. Something that is also unique about tribal nations in North America is that they have been, you know, like relegated to their reservations. And, you know, there's also, there's 573 tribal, federally recognized tribes, and there's hundreds more um, that aren't federally recognized. And Mm. they have this commitment to their, their homeland. And when you physically put a border about where this is your nation's border. There is a there's a deeper sense of commitment. Like we're we can't exploit this place because this is the only place that we have. And right. and that is something that I think needs to permeate into the dominant culture is that, you know, there isn't a second earth. There isn't and especially in North America, there is an endless westward expansion that we can mm-hmm. continue to go through. Like we have to we have to like settle down and exhale and commit to the places that we are in and improve them and have a reciprocal relationship like you're saying because it's it's a it's a myth that there's there's endless resources it's not that's not you know climate scientists know this but but a lot of people don't i don't think they Mm -hmm. fully under like can can 
commit to just improving one place forever. Yeah. I was wondering, that made me think of uh, this kind of myth, this cultural myth that we have of infinite expansion. And I just wondered if that myth was nurtured by the fact that along with the industrial revolution we were able to travel further and faster and that that really opened up the possibilities of expanding one's kind of sphere of influence you know to a larger and larger set of of lands whereas you know in in a culture that maybe didn't have as much of that it didn't have as much of that then your scope for like what is your your world what is your sphere of influence is kind of more local and like you said you'll you'll you might tend to value it more because it's right there in front of you and you see what happens if you don't treat it well. You have that kind of knowledge. Whereas if, you know, you're building some, I don't know, some giant mine somewhere in a different continent and all you see, you know, from a Western nation, all you see is the money rolling in, you know, (laughs) then that changes how you see the whole equation and how you see the whole activity. It uh, maybe isn't impacting you as much if the mine is causing big environmental degradation, you know, in that faraway continent. Um, so yeah, there's concepts of local and remote in this the creation of this myth and the you know, speed with which you can travel is maybe like part of the creation of that of that myth. But I'm just reacting. Don't don't mind me. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> what was that? So did, was there anything else there? I don't want to rush you. Also, if you had more before we move on to that other ex- example. No, I think I think that's just such an yeah. It, there's no a way to throw to. I don't know who said that, but that's this, that's just more of what you're saying. Like we we displace a lot of the extractive industry out of our you know sphere, and then we think that it can keep continue and expand forever. Mm-hmm. But if we had to localize all of that production, <laughs> would we still want to do it? Like I don't know. Right. Right. Now, you know, maybe in a few centuries we can mine asteroids and that's like, <laughs> that's fine. There's nobody living on the asteroids. That's fine. That's the, yeah. that's a totally different ballgame. Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was the um, timber farming example. Did we want to do another one? Yeah. I think the other one that is really interesting too is um, that the Blackfeet tribe in Montana, they have a really large buffalo herd. But every year they actually have to cull it back down because there isn't enough pasture for these buffalo to roam. They have super wide roaming areas that they would prefer to be in. And the buffalo, the the Blackfeet tribe and the Intertribal Buffalo Council are lobbying and working to one day down the line create technically international buffalo reserve where they would be able to cross into Canada. And back down through all of the national parks, through Glacier, through Rocky National Park, and all the way down. And there would just be this communally held herd of buffalo that would have free range to travel and not have to um, deal with borders that are not real for them, for the buffalo. Yeah, they wouldn't need passports, for example. Yeah, I mean, they can't cross into Canada. (laughs) Which is so interesting because the buffalo, they have a, the, the Blackfeet tribe, they have a sister tribe. Mm. Um, they have sister tribes in Canada that have the exact same culture, the Kainai and the Sisica that are First Nations in Canada. And it's so interesting that they have, you know, that border between Canada and North America was created relatively recently from yeah. their time perspective. 
And still the buffalo who have ancestral connections to Canada can't cross into Canada. Um, And so I think that another future, in a future earth, what would be amazing is what if we could just break down some of these borders for wildlife to cross um, and just let them roam free. I'd never thought about that. I'd never thought about the border restrictions applying to wildlife as well. I guess I had kind of assumed that they did go back and forth. So I really wasn't aware that they, that they were kind of stopped there at the border. But um, and is there some kind of physical barrier there or is, is it kind of closed off in some way? Or Yeah, I mean, there's there's private land that that is right. between the Blackfeet Reservation and Canada. So if buffalo cross onto private land, then they can be killed or whatever. Um, right, okay. So there's there's just the there's not like a physical border beyond just dotted line or whatever on the ground or on a map. Yeah. So we've got so far we kind of local management of forests, kind of putting the forest first. We've got uh, no borders for wildlife, or certainly more open borders for for wildlife, so that you know, they can continue these you know, really ancient migratory pathway, continue to inhabit these ancient migratory pathways uh what else what else do you think this is fun this is a good uh not yeah. user imagination um, to picture future possibilities I, I think that the hawaii example i i really loved going to hawaii and i think that learning about the history of hawaii is such an interesting because it's such, it's shorter than even the colonization you know it happened more recently than the colonization of um the rest of north america like the island of hawaii and then hearing about how, you know, the indigenous, the native Hawaiian people who had the same kind of traditions as a lot of other people in Micronesia or in Polynesia, um, starting with just like their, like how did native Hawaiian people get to the islands of Hawaii? And that was based on this, this like desire to follow birds that would leave one island in, in Polynesia and they would go they would go out farther than they would be able to track them. And every, for generations, there were people that in their canoes that had those beautiful sails, they would, they would follow the bird. And there was this, this quest of figuring out where those birds are flying to, because they wouldn't just leave our world for nothing. They, they must be going somewhere. Mm. And then eventually, finally, after generations of people trying on this quest, they found the islands of Hawaii. And they were able to cultivate these incredible, this incredible, uh, diverse food forest with, you know, everything that they could ever imagine. And, and like there was, there wasn't any, there was barely any poisonous plants or poisonous mm-hmm. frogs. Like there was very, it was kind of like a, the way that we got to hear about, you know, the way of the native Hawaiians from Kalani Souza, Reverend Kalani Souza was, mm. it's kind of like a, like a, utopian feeling of just yeah. like this this like ab- incredibly abundant place that had everything yeah. that you could ever imagine that came from a quest of following a bird it just feels <laughs> so beautiful yeah absolutely i like uh-huh. the reference i thought like you know from a from a character point of view i'm not trying to reduce anybody to a character but just like from a personality standpoint i thought oh the reverend's cool i'd like to hang out with the reverend yeah yeah, he's amazing. He's he knows so much history. Um, we couldn't capture 
at all in in our documentary. He's, no. Yeah, him and him and Craig, they're a great team too. Another team of you know taking his like Kalani's indigenous knowledge and wisdom, and then he's working really closely with um, Dr. Craig Elevich, who's publishing papers, and they are traveling through Micronesia helping to reestablish these food forest practices. So again, it's that, that like merging of, of the old way and the new way of doing things and, and using each other and building, building up on each other's strengths. Yeah. So like the Reverend talked about how in the 1800s that um, you know, people came in to colonize Hawaii and basically forced the islanders to grow this monoculture, right, of just sugar and pineapples and that was stands in such contrast to what the traditional practices were because the traditional practices were much more about you know biodiversity which you know as we've learned and as we mentioned earlier uh, i'm not a biologist or an ecologist but i at least have gotten that impression that like yeah biodiversity is so critical because that's a more robust ecosystem that's that's something that can change some species might die some species might you know become more prolific uh but not prolific that's not the word i'm looking for they might become more um prominent that's what i wanted uh but the 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 idea is if you have everything is just a monoculture then one disease the wrong disease can come along and just wipe the whole thing out and then you're in in real trouble um and it was connected to climate change too you know there are going to be species that are going to be able to adapt to climate change better than than others and if you've if you place all of your bets on one species, that's pretty risky. Yeah. And, and Auntie Shirley talks about that too, with the, with the coffee borer bug. They've, yeah. in addition, your cane and the pineapple, there's also a section of the big Island of Hawaii that they're only doing um, coffee monocropping because that's where the most economic value is. Mm. And it's this interesting understanding that Auntie Shirley said that she grew up with her grandparents that we're always planting a little bit of everything. And that's such a, and that was out of this gener, intergenerational knowledge of climates may change, pests may come, and we need to have redundancy in order to survive. And the island is also such a, such a good metaphor of Earth. Kalani Sousa says, you know, we all have to pull for the canoe. We're all on this this the island is a canoe and the canoe is an island. He says that, which is this this understanding that, you know, we're all on earth together and we all need to work towards turning the tide, turning the, the, the canoe around into a more relaxed system that is in balance, like this exhale that you mentioned earlier, which I think you would love to to hear. Is it and I and I totally am I love that feeling too of that's what it would be to settle down these economic systems and turn the canoe around and um i'm just i think that that's what we that's the journey of our time that's our quest for for this generation is turning yeah. it around i like that maybe that's a good place to talk about some of the sources of resistance i mean you've put it really beautifully about turning the, the tide all being in the same boat together and that mm. it seems really, really clear that we need to change like how we value things uh, in order to make progress on the, the climate issue. But I guess, you know, what do you think some of the sources of resistance are? Why, why is it so difficult to get kind of everybody moving in, in the same direction, you know? And, uh, and, and are there 
are there valid things behind some of those fears? You know, it's uh, it is worth kind of considering that there's hesitation, and I don't want to like demonize anybody. There can sometimes be reason for, reasons for that hesitation, and sometimes quite understandable reasons for that. Um, so I don't know what what kind of resistance have you have you encountered, and how have you dealt with that in your exchanges with people? Yeah, I think that there's a resistance in the fact that um, in a lot of the dominant cultures, you know, stories and their intergenerational knowledge hasn't gone back as far as like into what it was even like to live kind of in balance. But something that um, we heard a lot from the people that we got the opportunity to interview was, was not any type of feeling that, you know, they, they understand that, you know, everyone deserves to be on this earth and we're all come, we all come from the creator and there's a reason that we're all here and there's this bigger sense of there's not any, you know, demonizing anybody. And, mm-hmm. and that was something that was really, um, relaxing because there is this kind of like sense of guilt being a European person on that lives in New York that came through a set a settler colonial path into you know a place that i wasn't like that i'm my ancestors aren't indigenous to we didn't you know my ancestors are indigenous to sweden so it's it's such it was such an interesting thing to like think about and then there's also this sense of that like in my own stories for my swedish grandparents like i didn't hear stories about living in balance with the world around me um and i think that some of the the points of resistance are just that, you know, this is the system that, that is, is here now. This is what we created. And, and there's not a, there's not a strong enough point of reference about what an alternative could be. Um, hmm. And that's, that's the hardest thing is that there, there hasn't been anything that has been fully in balance at this scale. Yeah. In fact, what that made me think of, uh, I feel like often the narrative is, you know, if we think going back a few generations and thinking from kind of a U.S. centric perspective, uh, you know, the narrative was almost like, "What do you mean?" Like a hundred years ago, like it was hell. You know, it was the depression mm-hmm. and the dust bowl, and just things were not good, and you could die from, you know, a, a disease that these days we would just shrug and say, "Well, here, take this pill, you'll be fine." Um, there, there has been a tremendous amount of progress in those ways right in terms of we can now deal with um you know a, a wide variety of even just thinking about medical stuff alone you know we can now deal with a wide variety of illnesses that in the past would have just been a death sentence um you know we've got glasses for example i'm wearing glasses on my face right now um you know i i don't know i wouldn't fare too well without them uh, i wouldn't necessarily you know be that i'd, I'd have to find something to do i guess but you know, um, so I wonder if there's kind of a sense of, you know, all of this progress that we like to call it in, in the West is kind of, you know, getting away from, I would like to think that, we, that that's maybe what the merging looks like is that we can hold on to some of that more Western kind of progress and the things that have come out of the scientific approach, broadly, broadly speaking, I'm just calling that the like Western scientific tradition, um, mm-hmm. lot, lots of things that are arguably beneficial have come out of that. And that I guess the balancing or the uh, merging might just come from 
that's fine. We can keep all of that, but let's change how we value nature and let's change how we value like our relationships with each other and with society. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but that's the kind of area that I'm, that it made me think of when, when you mentioned that. Yeah, definitely. I, it, me too. In, in the sense of that, yeah, the, the, the history that we come from, the most recent history is one of being, uh, or that Europeans come from is, is this, uh, incredible struggle and this, this incredible, um, yeah, like there's something missing and, and the resistance could be that we don't want to go, we don't want to revert into a society where we don't have um, material comforts and the things that we're so accustomed to that all people enjoy, um, you know, and yeah. it's, or, so it's, it's this thing. And I think that the merging and what's something that we can definitely learn from um, indigenous people and something that I've learned is that um, another point of resistance is that we can't adapt. There's just, you know, it's, it's an Im- impossibility that we will be able to adapt in, in the amount of time that is necessary to make substantial change. So why bother? Right. Mm. And I think something that someone who I'm, I'm remembering right now is Jeff Greeno, who was on the Menominee. Um, he lives on the Menominee. He's a researcher and he's an ethnobotanist. And um, something that he, that we talked at length about was if you can put yourself in a mindset of indigenous people in the 1700s or when settler colonial people were coming, how quickly their society had to adapt to the impending doom of what would happen if they didn't adapt, that they would just get completely mm-hmm. erased. Mm-hmm. And their pride in themselves and their pride and 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 their their, you know, sheer will to endure the colonization and they they've been able to maintain it so they they he talks jeff greeno talks a lot about the cultural climate change that their people had to go through just a few generations ago and they did it they successfully Mm. did it um they are here today and that is something that i've taken as you know doing climate research and and being in environmental studies for my undergraduate and my master's degree this impending doom of what will happen and we can't adapt fast enough and just knowing that there is enough innovation and ability and resiliency to adapt and that if there's all these native people that were able to adapt that our dominant culture can also do it because Mm -hmm. we're all human and we all have the ability to be flexible and be resilient and change in, in these dire situations where you have to. So the resistance of, of thinking that you can't, which is something that is hard to feel. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. There's a precedent for it is possible for humans to adapt quickly. You know, groups of us have done it before and we can do it again. Um, we're pretty tough <laughs> overall. You yeah. know, that was actually something that I found myself... Um, telling my son so he's almost 10 he's going to be he's going to be 10 soon when the pandemic started up you know a couple of months into the pandemic he is old enough to be aware of it and to have conversations mm-hmm. about it and one of the things that i think he found calming it seemed to kind of calm him down is when i mentioned that like yeah about 100 years ago there was a a massive pandemic there was the spanish flu it was you know really really bad, but you know we got through it. There have been other 
pandemics and plagues in the past, but you know, humanity overall, we can we can do this. We can get through it. Um, now, to to what extent did I believe that when I said I did? I did believe it overall. I mean, I will admit that it was pretty scary in the early months there. You know, in the early months of the pandemic when we we didn't know anything. Um, there was certainly, I did certainly have a big sense of dread and a big sense of like, where is this going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it, like, like so many people did. I'm not saying that that makes me unique, but um, it did seem to like help calm my son down and, and me down a little bit to just be able to look at those past pandemics and go like, okay, we can, we can get through this. I guess the, it is true that we haven't, as a species, been through climate change on this rapid of a time scale before, but yeah. I, I like the I like the optimistic perspective of we're tough, and if we you know get to if we get to work, and if we're determined, we can do this. We can make it, and we can yeah. make it out of this. Um, we can keep going. Yeah, we've covered a lot of really interesting ground there. And uh, are there other examples you want to talk about? Or I, I feel like we've we've outlined we, we've we've done a lot. We've done a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think the thing that when you were saying that we have gotten through this and, and historically we know that we've gotten through it. Um, but there's there's also like this sense of what we've heard from some of the people that we um, became friends with, especially like out on Navajo, which is in the Four Corners region. And they were really hit hard by COVID. Um, but they, they also had this calming sense of endurance that, you know, they even have stories that have withstood, like withstood the test of time. And they, they have stories and of the Spanish flu that have maintained Mm -hmm. through their oral tradition. Right. And I think that's something that's so interesting that, you know, like I don't have any stories to point reference to in my, in my own like family's lineage of what their experience was like during the Spanish flu. And they had these lessons of, of, you know, you need to isolate, you need, they had the, the, they've already learned the techniques of coping with a pandemic because they've, and that, that oral tradition has maintained. And I think that's something that is so interesting about the knowledge keepers and the knowledge bearers of, in all of these communities is that they have a memory that goes so far back that there, there are stories about climate change in their, mm. in their oral tradition. And uh, that's yeah. something that is, is, is incredibly valu- valuable. And, and researchers that are starting to work directly with tribes on doing climate adaptation planning are, are not just taking their oral histories as something that is, you know, mythical. They, they, they realize that their oral traditions that are b- based in a place and based in reality from hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago yeah and and even like the hopi prophecy rock that michael dr michael katutwa johnson he shows the prophecy rock which was you know he didn't put an exact date on it but it was definitely like bce so it was thousands of years ago and they Uh had this 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 story of the you know if you continue in your traditional ways then you'll make it on into the next world and if you continue up this this again this infinite growth pattern like everybody else then you then your line will end right. and that is something that is a tradition that is held in in their culture um 
from <laughs> from a prophecy rock that came from thousands of years ago. And and in the Hopi oral tradition, they believe that they've been through seven worlds already, seven worlds of change, and they're still here. So this is their seventh world. Right. So you're talking about the prophecy rock, which in the documentary was a depiction of this. Um, like you said, there was two different paths depicted. It was a drawing. It's basically it's like a cave cave drawing or on on a rock, and you know there were two paths depicted. One of them is following the kind of traditional knowledge. These repeating cycles. Um, forgive me if I'm getting them mixed up. I think it was a different tribe whose uh, religion was called Earth Renewal. Was that that was a different yeah, that's one? Yeah, the first tribe. Right, right, yeah, okay. Um, but I love that idea, right? That the the thing, the religion for them is Earth Renewal. This process of this this is a cycle. This can repeat. This can continue. This is um, expansion and contraction. Ex- expansion and contraction, not just expansion. You know, inhaling and exhaling, not just inhaling. And so, one path, the traditional path, had that kind of inhalation, exhalation, whereas the other path that was depicted as a way to ruin was just continued expansion forever and ever. So they understood about exponential growth. They had they knew some. They intuitively knew some mathematics. <laughs> there and the the implications of yeah either follow a cycle and continue forever or follow a tra- uh, trajectory of exponential growth and at some point that doesn't continue um yeah, yeah. so um i was kind of curious like how do you fund a documentary like this is that okay to, to talk about or to ask about i was kind of curious like how that happened yeah, totally. So we were lucky enough to partner with different foundations. So the very the very beginning, the, the first grant came from the Namaste Foundation, which had supported Costa's first documentary, which is called Inhabit, a permaculture perspective. And they loved the film. And we pitched the idea for this with our tribal advisory board. So they knew that it was going to be something that had cultural sensitivity and value for the people that we were going to be working with. And they gave us like a really small pre-production grant, which is very rare in documentary filmmaking. Mm. <laughs> um, so that that gave us enough to like get going. And then um, once we had a bunch of interviews and kind of could put some stuff together, we were really lucky to partner with the Calliopeia Foundation, which is a foundation that's based in California. And has um, we got connected with a grant maker there who is a native woman um, from Canada, so she's from a First Nation in Canada, and she saw the film preview when we sent it to them. And because she was, she just happened to be in a position where she was able to give a grant for a film. That was one of those examples of like how having a diverse board of people that are doing something, they can see different pieces of value in different in different stuff. We had we had actually like pitched the film to several foundations and this was the first one that was actually like this is something that we can get behind and support and I think it was honestly just because like we had a native person that was able to see the value even in the rough cut of some of the footage that we had. Um, so the Calliopeia Foundation has been incredibly generous to help us finish the film and then now they're also helping us fund an impact campaign now that the documentary has, you know, it premiered in March. And now we're in this like six month period where we are able to offer um, free screenings of the film. And um, we're going to be doing webinars with the film subjects every month between July and November. Um, and then November, we're gearing up towards having the film be released on a more 
accessible platform. Um, so that's, that's mm -hmm. really, we just feel really lucky to have gotten to partner with them, the Calliopeia Foundation. And then more recently, something else that's really exciting, um, and maybe people in your audience who are teachers or, um, you know, working in academic settings, we got um, more support from the Henry Luce Foundation to create a curriculum that will actually fit national standards in North America. And I don't know if a lot of your audience is in um, Europe or not, but it's, it's exciting to be able to create a supplemental curriculum that can be used in classroom settings to kind of promote these ideas more as, um, yeah, in, in those hmm. institutions. Yeah. Um, we seem to have a lot of listeners in North America and, and Europe. So it's split a bit between the two. Okay. Well, that's, that's really great. Like, I'm glad you were able to find that pathway to not only, not only get it funded, but to put it out there and to the webinar idea sounds really interesting because then you can make it a little bit more personal as well. You can connect the stories that, and, and the interviews with uh, kind of people on a more, more individual basis. That's exciting. Yeah. And there's a lot more we could talk about potentially, you know, I, I was, I know we already kind of left the topic, but thinking about sources of resistance, going back to that yeah. thread, um, I think for a lot of people, um, so I grew up in the South US and there, there's kind of a strong culture, at least where and when I grew up of people, um, saying and feeling like, well, I don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be, mm. they, there's like a sense of, of distrust there. There's a sense of, um, you know, like, well, don't trust, you know, a big government coming in or don't trust some big collective thing coming in that that's, uh, that's not something to, to engage with. And I think it's really interesting casting that in terms of, you know, we keep talking about like generational knowledge and generational, like that those things do carry through generations. You kind of pick up on ideas and attitudes from your parents and grandparents and it's kind of in, in the water and kind of culturally. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't quite know what to do with that one. I don't quite know what to do with the resistance of, well, I just don't want to be part of a big collective thing. Uh, mm. I, I don't trust that. I've been wounded by that before. So I'm going to cut myself off and just protect myself and the rest of you can just deal with it. Um, that's kind of coming from a, a wounded and guarded place, I guess. So that's the kind of feeling that I get from it. Um, you know, that there's there's a lack of, of trust. So yeah. I guess I guess you have to find some way to build trust and build relationships, uh, and that's certainly what like Catherine Hayhoe, the approach she's taking is more. Well, think about building relationships with people. Start with those you know person to person connections, build that trust up and that confidence up, um, and then it's not some you know stranger or faceless big you know government coming in to tell you what to do. Then it's a mutual problem you've got with somebody that you you care about that you're connected to mm -hmm. um and it's something that you can work on together does that make you think of anything or did have you encountered that um line of of resistance of just not trusting uh you know a shift towards a more kind of collective uh approach to, to nature yeah yeah or 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 not only just a more collective approach but just a different way of doing things um yeah I think that, well, well, the, the experience that we were able to have is 
there was even just like with our film subjects was there was like a lack of trust with us from the very oh, beginning. Right. Also, like mm. we directly experienced this like lack of trust. And especially when I was working like for the USDA, there was even an even stronger lack of trust of, of like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm here at your event and you're probably not going to listen to me, but here I am anyway. Um, and I think that uh, something that like Catherine was mentioning is like building these like person to person relationships and really like having the discussion be like a, a discussion where you're really listening to what is needed on the other side of the aisle, like who you're, who you're working with and who you're talking to, to be able to establish trust. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for us, me and Costa, when we were making the documentary, something that we heard a lot was that, you know, not all of our information is information that should be shared. And in the indigenous communities that we were working with, there was a strong distrust of academic scientists working with them because a lot of the, the past has been relationships of extraction, of taking things right. from them. And, you know, like, for example, on the Karuk tribe, which is in Northern California, up the Klamath River in the mountains, um, there were scientists that would come and say, you know, we really need to collect all this climate data. Like, you know, where are some places? And And there had been, you know, like, knowledge about where you know the wind god lived and where the other like where these different like spirit beings kind of resided within the landscape but they but something that you know the Kirk people wanted to do was like hold that information really close because they didn't want a weather station to be built in their most sacred place where the wind god lived so they kept that information really really like protected and guarded Hmm. And yet the Forest Service or whatever researcher was working, like they really wanted to, you know, just get what they wanted and didn't have this like reciprocation of listening and, and having a compromise and something. And now something that the Karuk tribe does is they require all research to go through this like cultural resource advisory board process where you sit mm-hmm. down and you talk in front of a panel of elders and you say what your intentions are. And they explicitly tell you that you know, not a, not all of our information is meant to be shared. We have intellectual property over the work that is being done. And, you know, you need to listen to us. So they're changing the relationship of one that used to be extractive to one that is now reciprocal. And I think that, yeah, like the, the resistance that maybe like Western culture has with being part of this bigger, you know, like government agency or a collective, like you said, is is this maybe in the past it hasn't gone so well because, mm-hmm. you know, of whatever conditions were in place at the time. And I think something that in terms of envisioning what a new future would look like, it would be figuring out how you can understand what your fear is and then being able to like transform that into a way that like it doesn't have to be so scary because there is a mutual trust relationship and everything has to be different moving forward anyway. Mm-hmm. And and like the Karuk tribe, they have to deal with so much fear in the work that they're trying to do. They, like you said, like their their religion is Pikyawish, which is world renewal. Yes. And their yep. religion is based upon doing prescribed fire to renew the land and to be able to live in that place. They have they're facing so many institutional barriers and also cultural barriers of fear really deep-seated fear of fire and then if they don't right. if, and they're they're coping with that every day and they're working to dismantle that mm. fear on a on yeah. a person-to-person basis really yeah in the documentary you mentioned you know smoky bear who 
you know, if you grew up in the, the States anyway, and you're roughly my age, I don't know if it's still a thing really, but like if you're it roughly, you know, it still is. Okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, this cartoon character, you know, introducing you to the dangers of, you know, don't just throw your matches and, you know, other lit things into the forest. You might start a giant forest fire and there, there, there really is a sense of, you know, being afraid of fire. It like instills this, you know, have, have a healthy, have a, a fear of it, um, you know, make your campfire, but that's really all you should, you should do. And here's how to put your campfire out, out properly. And I never really thought about that being kind of almost, um, taken to the extreme of no fire management whatsoever and no, no indigenous fire management whatsoever. Um, but you, you, I could totally see how that then becomes a barrier, right? People are under, are kind of under, Understandably, to an extent, like afraid of like, wait, you're going to set a fire, you're going to start a fire intentionally, and how are you going to keep it from you know burning down my house? And uh, so, yeah, I think the sense I got in the documentary was that that was actually something I wasn't totally aware of. Was uh, how how do you you know do a controlled burn where you can be very confident that like, no, this is where it's going to stop or that it's, it's not going to just turn into this enormous kind of blaze. And that's probably too detailed of a conversation for now. And I'm, I'm getting off into a tangent, but. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's another connection that I could totally make for, for you or is hmm. um, Dr. Frank Lake, who is interviewed in the film and he talks a lot about the history of it. Um, he is a Karuk and Yurok tribal. He has, he holds both, tribal affiliations and he works for the forest service currently so he's this incredible melding and blending of all of these different sources of knowledge but something that came up for me when you were talking about smoky bear and this you know sense of you really need to stay in your little campfire and you can't you know extend beyond that it kind of gets into this deeper worldview of um conservation conservationists leaving things be leaving nature you know, alone, and that's the best way to protect it and preserve mm -hmm. it. And um, how, you know, in, in certain ecotypes, like in California, um, that isn't necessarily like the most responsible way of managing the forest, because mm -hmm. then it's a dangerous landscape, it becomes a dangerous landscape when you leave it alone, because there's too much buildup of fuel, which will then burn down your, your fire, but it's burned down your house, but it's this worldview of fire being and fire being scary and the forest being some place that is some place that you visit and then leave. And it's this like distant entity that isn't, you know, like you have your like home, which is domesticated and then you, and then the forest, which is wild. Mm. Um, and I think that something that conservationists are starting to come around to is, is that you can't just leave things be fully um, you have to kind of figure out a way for like the human needs to be met and the, the forest needs to be met and how that can be, you know, a mutually beneficial interaction and that humans right. can be positive on the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. What's, um, what's, I'm kind of interested in the things that you learned while filming the documentary that maybe don't have so much to do with the, the topic, but, you know, what did you kind of learn about the process of making a documentary that you didn't know before you got into one? Yeah, I think that, well, something that was unique about what our process was, was that we shared the footage with our film subjects before we released it. So we had yeah. this kind of 
um, we had a we had a tribal advisory board from the very beginning where they were helping guide the you know intention of the film and making sure that everything was culturally appropriate. And part of that process was that was this like concept that like not all information is going to be shared. And if I'm going to have, you know, an interview with you that I'm going to be sharing a lot of like my personal tribal knowledge, I'm a knowledge keeper and I'm going to be sharing stuff with you. I want to make sure that I still have some type of, you know, intellectual property over what I'm, what I'm expressing. And I don't and not all information is meant to be shared. And there are some Mm -hmm. things that we don't want to have out in the world because it's too, it's too precious to us. And, and I think that, um, even that whole, that concept of, you know, like protection, because it's so valuable is something that I, I really appreciate. Yeah. It gives you a, a stronger sense of like respect, um, and, and understanding that we, we were so privileged to be able to talk to people and there's a responsibility that you have there and that relationship that you need to give back. Yeah. It's an interesting challenge to the kind of, there's been a push in science to make everything more open lately. And mm-hmm. I'm really on board with a lot of that. But that's an, the example you mentioned. This is something we also talked about with Dr. Valerie Small, who's mm-hmm. the you know director of this Trees, Water, and People organization. And she mentioned something similar because um, you know, she's from an indigenous tribe and has, has roots there and works with the with the tribes quite a lot and she said that same thing is that uh i'm going to paraphrase a little bit but you know in a, in a totally open not everything is meant to be put into that big open filter and just broadcast out to the whole world they want to have ownership over some of those practices and some of that knowledge that it's an interesting contra- counter example or an interesting contrast yeah interesting challenge to the worldview of everything being open um which yeah 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 um yeah what about um i don't know i guess you you had to travel to these places you had to um you know was it difficult getting the equipment everywhere did you have a lot of equipment or was it more were you you a fairly compact organization yeah well it was it was basically just me and costa um and we had like two cameras and we were traveling in a truck camper, so a camper that was on the back of a truck um, for almost two years filming because we went Mm -hmm. back to every place twice. And that was another thing that we learned too was that, you know, you can't just go once and leave. Like you had to go once and then you had to return in order to really like build that trust and also like make sure that you were there at the right time and the right place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we heard from people was like, just come and show up and then we'll, we'll like start having a conversation. They didn't, there wasn't as much interest in like, doing long emails back and forth. It was just kind of like show up and we'll see, you know, from that starting point, that's where oh, our right. relationship will begin. Oh, that's interesting. So I love yeah. that. I love that. <laughs> not so much email space, <laughs> like mm. more in-person stuff. And I think something mm. else that I learned is that, you know, like there are, there's, especially in the Northeast where I grew up, like there isn't a lot of native influence left. It, this was kind of like the first point of contact and a lot of the tribes had to get moved, like they were moved. You know, there's the Lenape Muncie homeland, which is where I'm I'm at. Like the Lenape Muncie people were moved down to Oklahoma. There are some in Ontario. There's actually some in Wisconsin. Um, but just because there aren't like physical tribal reservations that are like in your specific region doesn't mean that there isn't indigenous knowledge from those places that are still kept in other places. Like something that I've learned, which is really interesting is that, you know, even people who 
ended up growing up and having now several generations on on like reservations in Oklahoma, like they still knew that they came from a place with an amazing big river, which is the Hudson River now. Hmm. Um, but what they called like the Mahikanatuck, which is just this like there's like this sense of like where they are from, even if it's not something that they are they are um, you know like they don't live here. Or they do, but they don't have a reservation here. Um, they're right, o- right. they're always like native people are in every single state, in every single place across this country. Um, and over half of native people live in cities. So there's mm. there's this sense of of like I think something that I have learned now is that there isn't a place that you can't you know like build relationships with native people and learn from them and get a sense of you know, reciprocity and understanding where, like how that place should be managed. And it's actually super interesting here in New York state, um, prescribed fire was also a management technique and a management Mm -hmm. practice Mm -hmm. that has now not been, you know, practiced for several generations. And it's just an interesting thing when we're thinking about doing, you know, balancing the world back out, I feel like bringing back the practices that were here for millennia before colonization would be a really important way of balancing that scale and doing that world renewal practice. So that, that comes from a really, a sense of like Mm. listening and learning and, and, um, there's, there's an an incredible website called nativeland.ca that is now starting to be a global, um, map that you can click Mm. on where you live and you can see whose ancestral territory that is. And it is such an interesting thing because there's literally no place in the world that there wasn't, that there haven't been, you know, a long history of people managing the land to survive. Hmm. Um, And learning that stuff now is, is, is really exciting. And Hmm. I think something that needs to be done more in schools. Yeah. I noticed that I'm starting to see in email signatures from you know, people who work at various U.S. universities and websites that universities especially are starting to put, not exactly disclaimers, but they're starting to mention, oh, this university sits on the traditional homeland of you know, these people, X people, or Y people. And that, that that was really interesting to see because I feel like, I don't know, that's another point of, of resistance that... Uh, I don't know what kind of resistance people encountered when trying to put that up. Yeah, you know, it's, it's been kind of interesting. Like, so I grew up in, in the States, and mm-hmm. if I go back a few generations on my kind of family tree, I don't know a ton about it, but yeah. I do know we've had some, you know, Scottish ancestry and, you know, kind of other general European ancestry. And it is kind of interesting coming here uh, on this little little island and just kind of being aware of that, like, Okay. Interestingly, you go back a few generations and, you know, some of my great, great, great grandparents would have been, you know, puttering around, I don't know, up, up in Scotland somewhere. And it's kind of neat to see that and kind of imagine that. Um, I don't really go anywhere with that because like you said, it's not, or you didn't say this explicitly, but kind of like we're hinting at, there hasn't been like a lot of actual knowledge transmitted, you know, f- from those older generations to, to me. I mean, there's kind of larger scale scientific practices and things, but, and I guess that, I guess that's what that is, but I don't, I don't have any specific things that I could tie to like uh, a small group of people. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, we, we just kind of, 
exploded off of Europe out, out into the world and, you know, expanded and um, didn't really carry um, in small groups anyway, that kind of traditional knowledge. But I, I don't know where I'm going with this. And it's so it's, interesting. Yeah. It's so like you don't know how your your generations before you spent their time to survive in a place before pre-industrialization. Like yeah. that isn't something that you I don't have that knowledge held either. No, I don't. And so like a friend took us on a hiking trip to Scotland and just walking around in the kind of mountains there and the kind of grassy mountains and seeing the the cows and other wildlife just kind of around. I mean, for, for all I know, I've got great grandparents, great, great, great grandparents who were like trying to farm, you know, in these very scrubby kind of rough conditions. Yeah. Um, and just think about all the stuff you need to know to make it to like survive in a, con- in a place where there's not exactly berries growing on every bush and not exactly, you know, um, giant, fields full of fertile uh, soil that you can use to grow corn you know they they must have really been hardy and had to come up with some clever practices um yeah but yeah i don't i don't know where any of that is or where where was that kept well and i i just want to say thanks very much for uh agreeing to to talk and uh, i really enjoyed the the documentary and i'm looking forward to kind of seeing it out there more in the world is there anything else you want to talk about or touch on? I feel like we've done a, a pretty thorough job touching, covering everything. Yeah, no, I, I think that for the people that are listening and for people who are interested in figuring out how to maybe like incorporate some more reciprocal practices and working with um, Native people, that there's lots of universities and there's lots of people to you know connect with and um there are a lot of really good examples of of this melding of western science and and using that platform and that that phd that you have that you know to be able to kind of spend your time like learning about the people that came from that place that you're living in like there's even with um the Karuk tribe, one of the tribes featured in the documentary, there's, they have a really strong relationship with this PhD, Kari Norgard, who works at the University of Oregon. And Kari's work is almost exclusively dedicated to um, helping to, you know, publish papers about the importance of maintaining and restoring the indigenous land stewardship practices of California. And she works with the tribe to do climate adaptation planning and get the, the resources that they need and do the research that they are, um, you know, needing and wanting help with. So I think that there's lots of really in, like interesting entry points. And I, yeah, just am excited to think about what this new future um, could look like where we're all listening to each other and working together and leveraging on each other's strengths. I like that. And I, yeah, it's the quest of our time to get it, to get it, like to get into this next phase of, of working together. Yeah. Yeah. I think Eric Holthaus uh, called it like a network of mutual responsibility. Like you have this you know, mutual relationship where you recognize that you have to take care of each other and the resources that you have in common. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, Anna. It's been really good to talk to you. <laughs> thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Dan, for having me. This is great. 
So there you have it, my conversation with Anna Palmer, co-director of the documentary Inhabitants, an Indigenous Perspective. Again, you can find details of the film at inhabitantsfilm.com. And a big thank you to Anna for joining me for that really lovely, enjoyable conversation. Now for some credits. Thanks to Sean Williams Page for editing services, and a big thank you to Lillian Blair for audio engineering consulting. Thanks to all of you for listening, downloading, sharing, subscribing. We've had a, a short break, but we're back now with some really exciting conversations lined up over the next few months. So keep an eye out wherever you get your podcasts. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.